0: The following program is sponsored by
1: Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth, Philip de encourages us to come to the Lord in song.
2: Doesn't Paul say in Philippians 5, 19, make melody in your heart to the Lord? So we receive the truth in our mind, but it's got to get into our heart. We've got to feel it. We've got to be moved by it. We've got to own it. We've got to personalize it and that emotion will want to find an outlet and that outlet is singing. That life touched by the gospel of grace will want to sing about God's amazing grace.
1: to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Today, Philip helps us find our voice so we can pour out our praise to God in song. After all, if we don't sing, how the stones will cry out. And we're learning to start by sitting under solid expository Bible teaching in the company of God's people. When we hear the gospel preached, we are filled with a life-changing truth that makes our hearts overflow in song. Today's message from Philip DeCourcy is titled, Join the Song. Let's listen.
2: So let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. A message entitled, Join the Song. You and I have been looking at the gem of grace. We've been looking at different facets of God's unmerited work in our lives. We've looked at saving grace. We've looked at serving grace. We've looked at strengthening grace. We've looked at speaking grace. Now we're looking at singing grace. Look what Paul says. He tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts, richly with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another. In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, notice singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The grace of God in our hearts produces a song from our hearts that escapes through our lips concerning the grace of God in our hearts. They're singing grace. So let's look at this singing on the saints. Let's look at number one, the form of singing. Number two, the function of singing. The form. Well, it seems that there are three forms of singing in our text Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms are pretty self-explanatory. For the most part, we're dealing here with the ancient hymns of Israel, which, by the way, is an interesting thought. The early church sang ancient hymns. Just throw that into the worship wars as you're thinking about it. There's nothing wrong with singing ancient hymns. Some of these were 700 to 1,000 years old by the time we get to Jesus. But here you have one genre or one category, Psalms then hymns. This would seem to refer to songs that were being written around that time, at least. Songs that had theological material at the center of what it was about. The hymn was more creedal in nature. You know, a psalm gave you voice, allowed you to speak to God, where a hymn spoke to you about God. Something about his nature, as we'll see in a few moments. Some argue that John 1, verse one to eighteen or Philippians two verses six to eleven or first Timothy three verse sixteen are all fragments of early Christian hymns. And they're very theological and creedal in nature. Speaking about Christ's deity and incarnation, virgin born, you know, death on the cross for our sins. They were a means of expressing theology. You know? And so that's kind of second category. The third category is a little bit more slippery spiritual songs, I think the best guess is these are songs sponsored by the Spirit. there would be songs more spontaneous, probably nowhere near as deep as a hymn, nowhere near as poetic as a psalm, but they might be something just comes together as the Spirit of God operates on your spirit, and as your love for Jesus Christ and the gospel is bubbling over, you're given a song— might only be a few refrains and you just kind of repeat it. It's probably much more personal, probably sung more by individuals who are being moved upon by the Spirit to do that. You might find that maybe somewhere in like First Corinthians 14, in an open time of sharing in the early church, someone might sing a spiritual song. But the point is this, even though we split the difference, I think we'd agree. Paul's point is there's no monopoly When it comes to worship songs and worship styles, you know, as your heart bubbles over with joy and wants to find expression, well, take your pick. In fact, don't just pick one category. Enjoy the variety and richness of Christian singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Some of the music is celebratory in nature. Some of it reflective, even a lament or a confession of sin. It's all of that, and it ought to be all of that. We want to embrace the variety and richness of Christian singing, past and present. It's not a question, is it old or is it new? It's a question of, is it good, is it theological, and is it singable? If it meets good, if it meets correct and theological and singable— then it's on the list. High sad to see God's people divide over worship styles and songs. The people of God are meant to come together, young and old, generation upon generation, and together with one voice sing to God. And you know what? If you can't settle on what style, then don't sing any style. Just sing a cappella, but stay together. Be a congregation of the saints, singing God's gospel back to him. How sad that Christian leaders cater to music styles. It seems to be that the early church, young and old, got together. They heard the Word of God preached by the work of God's Spirit and work on their own end. It began to take home in their heart. As it took home in their heart, it produced thoughts. It produced emotions. And they began to want to sing the gospel to each other. And they did it in a variety of styles and songs. That's the picture here. That's the form of singing. Here we've got to move on to the function of singing. This is kind of the heart of the message, the function of singing. We've talked about how you ought to sing and how you might sing, but why? I mean, why should you sing? There's several reasons in the text and I've added a couple to them. So if you're taking notes, you might want to start. I don't know how this worked out, but they all start with A. Here's the first reason. Here's the first function. An act of association. Singing is an act of association. It's a matter of expressing unity together. Come, let us exalt his name together, because it expresses our unity, our togetherness. It encourages us. It fosters unity. It brings us together. It holds us together. I mean, we've already argued, so I'm not going to beat, you know, a dead horse here, but this is congregational in nature. Verse 15 speaks about the body of Christ. Verse 16 talks about speaking to one another, and the Greek is in the plural. This isn't individualized worship. This isn't you singing in your car, or singing in the shower, or singing around the family table. And all of that's beautiful, by the way, except maybe singing in the shower because you always sound better in the shower than you really sound. But here's the deal. It's an act of unity. It's an act of association. They were to get together and sing. I love Psalm 149, verse 1, write it down, where it talks about singing in the assembly of the saints. Singing in the assembly of the saints. In an act of association. We gather to sing. That's a Christian thing. But singing gathers us together, holds us together. I like what Bob Coughlin says in his book, True Worshippers. Singing helps us express our unity with the church. Paul uses the musical term harmony several times in his letters. In each case, he's not referring to music. He's describing relational unity. Let me just pause. So he's saying, hey, read the epistles. I think Peter does this too. They take a musical term like harmony, singing in harmony, and says that's the way the body of Christ is to operate. We're to be harmonious in tune with one another. Bob goes on, while gathering together is in itself an expression of our unity, singing together is an opportunity to deepen it and express it better better than simply reciting or shouting words in unison. Singing enables us to spend extended periods of time communicating the same thoughts, passions, and intentions to each other. And that's not only a spiritual truth. This is a societal truth. You know this as a fact. Singing brings people together. The pub in England during the Second World War If you walked by one, you'd hear singing from it. As people got together, as communities met at that kind of focal point, and they sang songs about packing up your trouble in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. It was their way of getting together and rousing each other in the face of a Nazi threat. Patriotic songs. I remember growing up in a divided country in Northern Ireland and some of the homes of my relatives, you know, just sitting around and all of a sudden somebody would be asked to sing a patriotic song. You're just sitting in a living room, man, but you felt you were part of something, part of a story, part of a history. I think that's the role of the national anthem in the life of any nation. It's a flagpole around which people gather and find a unity in a common identity. Singing brings people together. I mean, sports events. You get a little bit of singing here in the United States, but you haven't experienced singing at a sporting event until you've gone to a British or European soccer game. I mean, before I got saved, I was into soccer in a big way and, and got caught up in some of the kind of soccer hooliganism of the 70s and the 80s. You know, kind of my ritual, get your clothes out, get your boots polished, get ready. You know, leave the house with your scarf on meet a couple of your mates, and you're walking along. The two become three, the three become four, the five become fifty. Before long, you're singing your songs about your team, singing them on the bus. You're singing them in the stadium with tens of thousands of others. Literally, of the 90 minutes of soccer, there could be 45 minutes of singing. And you might sing on the way home, depending on whether your team won or lost but it's singing. Think about it, your own experience, how integral singing is if you're part of a people, part of a team, part of a country. And what's true societally is true spiritually. Singing has a massive impact on unity within the church and the coming together of God's people. Number two, it's not only an act of association, it's an act of affirmation. Singing is an act of affirmation. It's a telling of the truth. It's an echoing of the Word that's dwelling in your heart that you just heard at church in the sermon. But you want to give expression to your own emotions and your own commitment. Notice again our text, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Notice, teaching and admonishing one another with or in or through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Did you realize that songs are teaching tools? That's why they've got to be good songs. That's why they've got to be theological songs. That's why they've got to be biblical songs, because they're going to teach us, and you can no more sing heresy than you can preach it. But you know what? Singing is an act of affirmation. Singing doctrinally substantial songs educates God's people baptizes us into a knowledge of Jesus Christ that allows us to know Him better, witness for Him better, love Him better, worship Him better. Some of the earliest Christian songs, as I alluded to, were creedal. They were written with theology in mind. Stuff that the church needed to kneel down, and so John one one eighteen, Philippians two six to eleven, Colossians two fifteen to twenty, First Timothy three verse sixteen. It's argued that they're all fragments of early Christian hymns, and if you look at those, they're about the virgin birth, they're about the deity of Christ, they're about the atoning death, they're about the soon return of Jesus Christ to set up His kingdom on earth. Big stuff theologically substantial. They were sung at baptisms and the Lord's Supper. So that would remind us, by the way, as I've alluded to, songs ought to be theological. It's a reminder not to allow emotions to dominate. Now, emotions are part of worship. We'll come to this in a moment. But if songs are to be teaching tools— they ought to have a theology that engages the mind and makes us think. Not only moves us, but educates us. And that's why emotions must never dominate when it comes to worshiping, because we must always engage the mind with the words and a theology of Christ. Number two, as I stated, we can no more sing heresy than teach it. You know what? If I was to preach heresy, I'd expect you to pull me down off the pulpit. And if Tom leads us in a song that's radical, you can do the same to him. Because that's kind of where we're at in this text. I like what Warren Wearsby says, I'm convinced that congregations learn more theology, good and bad, from the songs they sing than from the sermons they hear. Many sermons are doctrinally signed and contain a fair amount of biblical information, but they lack that necessary emotional content that gets hold of the listener's heart. Music, however, reaches the mind and the heart at the same time. It has power to touch and move the emotions, and for that reason can become a wonderful tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit or a terrible weapon in the hands of the enemy. A wonderful tool or a horrible weapon. So It's not only an act of association. Secondly, it's an act of affirmation. Thirdly, it's an act of assimilation. See, Paul here talks about letting the Word of Christ, the Gospel, the Word of God. Let that dwell in your hearts richly. We saw, ladies, didn't we? That was a very domestic word. It's about welcoming a guest into your home. It's about making them comfortable. So come on, on in, sit down there. That's our word. We've got to do the same with the word of God. We need to be people whose hearts are hospitable to Scripture. Now, to that end, Paul, I think, argues here one of the ways that that can happen is through singing, where songs make Scripture memorable. Songs not only allow us to express Scripture, songs allow us to receive and remember Scripture. Songs stick to the walls of our mind like limpets to a rock. That's why you know this experience in the middle of a situation in life, all of a sudden a line or a lyric from a song pops into your head and it's just so appropriate for the moment. Because songs are memorable. They have that ability. They have an ability to make theology and doctrine memorable. In fact that's why if you take one of the songs in the Psalter Psalm 119 which is about the word of God do you realize that that is arranged after the Hebrew alphabet that every stanza begins you know consecutively with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet I would have to deduce from that that the writer of that song arranged it in such a way that he wanted to make the word of God memorable in song. Let me give you a verse to write down and think about. Deuteronomy 31, verse 21. The Israelites are about to enter into the land of Israel, and God wants them to remember his word. And so he teaches them a song. And the reason he teaches them a song, according to that verse, Deuteronomy thirty-one, twenty-one, is this. When many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall comfort them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. So as they're about to enter into the promised land, God teaches them a song, and he believes that one of the benefits of this song, it's unforgettable. It's memorable. It will come back to them again and again and again through their journey in the promised land. Huh, interesting. Again, there's this thought of singing being an act of assimilation. It allows us to take God's Word in and receive it. In fact, I was reading a book on the life of Isaac Watts, who was a wonderful hymn writer many, many years ago. He was also a pastor. In fact, his hymn writing career started when he was a young man. And like a lot of young men, he didn't like the songs that the church was singing. And he was bellyaching one night over the dinner table with his father. And his father said, okay, Isaac, then you go and write some better ones. And he did. And we still sing them today. And if you read his life story as I did, a wonderful book by Graham Bannon out of England as a pastor, he wrote songs for children. And one of his motivations was it would help children receive theology. And when he wrote this little hymnal for children, he said he had four reasons for writing it. Number one, it makes theology enjoyable. Number two, it makes it memorable. Number three, it gives children something to continue to think about themselves. And number four, it will allow families to sing around the dinner table. Beautiful. Let me go on. Number four, An act of amplification. An act of amplification. Not only association, affirmation, assimilation, but amplification. Now, we warned about the danger of emotions, but here I want to quickly correct, or at least balance that by saying we can never deny emotions. Never deny emotions. Now you've got to keep them under control. You don't want to get to a place like a literal church in Northern Ireland where the story came out that they got going singing and worshiping. They kind of detached their mind from their heart. Before long, the congregation was singing, he'll be coming round the mountain when he comes. <laughs> well, he'll be coming to a mountain, according to Zechariah 14. I don't know if he's coming round it, but that's just an example of like, hold on a minute. You just detached your mind from your heart. That's emotionalism. And that's scary. But emotion is different from emotionalism. Doesn't Paul say in Philippians 5, 19, a corresponding text to our text, make melody in your heart to the Lord? So we receive the truth in our mind, but it's got to get into our heart. We've got to feel it. We've got to be moved by it. We've got to own it. We've got to personalize it. And that sermon properly preached and properly received will produce worship and melody in the heart. It will be an emotional experience. And that emotion will want to find an outlet, and that outlet is singing. Heartfelt singing. Loud singing. Visceral singing. Emotional worship. There's nothing wrong with that. We've got to sing with grace in our hearts. Sing with grace in our hearts. Sing with our hearts. Hearts that are touched by the gospel of grace. And that life touched by the gospel of grace will want to sing about God's amazing grace. And worship in song and music amplifies our emotions, gives expression to our emotions. I like what Sam Storms says about that in a book, Singing God. God. Singing enables the soul to express deeply felt emotions that merely speaking cannot. God is so glorious, so beautiful. His Son is so powerful. His grace is so amazing. His love is so wonderful. His mercy is so marvelous. And His joy so unspeakable that you can't simply talk about those things. You've got to start singing about them. That's His point. Singing enables the soul to express deeply felt emotions that merely speaking cannot. Singing channels our spiritual energy in a way that nothing else can. Singing evokes an intensity of mind and spirit. It opens the door to ideas, feelings, and affections that otherwise might have remained forever imprisoned in the depths of one's heart. He's right.
1: You're listening to Philip de here on Know the Truth. What a beautiful gift God has given us to express ourselves in song, And to release our emotions in joyful praise. Hear more messages about singing grace when you visit ktt.org. And if you've never reached out before, connect with us today and request your free copy of Philip's message titled A New Beginning About God's Saving Grace. You can also call us at 888 644 8811. Now, the new year is in full swing, and we're already working hard to put together some great studies for 2019. They include our current study, Total Grace, plus upcoming series in Daniel and another about heaven. But let me remind you that Know the Truth wouldn't be here without you. It's the financial support of faithful listeners that make it possible for us to plan, prepare, and deliver the bold Bible teaching of Philip Decoursey all through the year. Your generosity is what sends out God's truth through the ministry of Know the Truth. Now, when you give, we'll send you the book called Grace Focused Optimism by C.L. Chase. Philip will be referring to this book throughout our current study, so it's a great one to start reading now. You'll learn how to live a life governed by grace, the grace that transforms your heart, your relationships, and your love for God. Request the book Grace Focused Optimism when you make a generous donation to know the truth. Call right now, 888-644-8811 or go to ktt.org. And when you visit our website, be sure to let us know how this ministry is impacting your walk with Christ. You can do that when you take the Know the Truth listener survey that you'll find right there on our homepage. This is your chance to tell us what matters most to you. Again, the survey is online at ktt.org. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Learn more about God's amazing total grace when you join us Friday on Know the Truth. Hey, this is Bob Olszewski. Thanks for listening to Plugged In. Fox's The Passage focuses on a future where scientists are experimenting with a dangerous virus that could lead to the cure for all disease. Or it could turn all of mankind into vampires. When a young girl named Amy is chosen to be a test subject, a federal agent named Brad decides it's time to whisk her away to safety.
0: New plant. We're not going to Colorado. It's a bad place. It is? Yeah, so we got to find some place safe.
1: At times, this show feels like a heartwarming family story, with familial bonds being forged between Amy and her rescuer. But this is also a vampire show that sports splashing blood and coarse language. So I'll give the passage a two and a half out of five for family friendliness. See the full review at pluggedin.com/radio. I'm Bob Olashewski for Focus on the Families Plugged In.
2: How many sh-